joining us here on episode 197 of Monster Kid Radio. And thanks to the band Dinosaur Ghost for allowing us to play their music this week on the show. We opened with the song Dig Site from their album called Dinosaur Ghost. You can find them over at dinosaurghost.bandcamp.com when you're done listening to this episode of Monster Kid Radio, where we celebrate the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook, and I'm excited because we are going to dive in to a subgenre of monster movies that I absolutely adore. And I'm talking about mummy movies. I love me a mummy movie. I don't know what my mummy issues are, but I absolutely adore a mummy movie. I'll watch a bad mummy movie and find, I'm just hooked on mummy flicks. Unfortunately, so is the Nicholas Hatcher. Nicholas Hatcher is the man behind the Vampire Over Hollywood podcast, where he talks about nothing but Bela Lugosi movies. Well, I got him to come back to Monster Kid Radio to talk about mummy films. We're going to talk about the mummy's hand in this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Now, in this episode, we're going to talk about the cast, a little bit about the crew, before we talk about the movie in depth. So stay tuned for that conversation. After that, I've got some feedback to go over. So we're going to do that. We're going to talk to Nicholas Hatch about The Mummy's Hand. We're going to do all of that right after this. Volcanic fury of Vesuvius. From the ravaged city of Pompeii, across 2,000 years comes one of the strangest mysteries of all time. The Curse of the Faceless Man. spanned the centuries, crossed the dividing line between yesterday and today, between the past and the present, even between life and death. Zombie, a new novelization of the classic horror movie from award-winning author Stephen D. Sullivan. Available now in print and all ebook formats. Find it on Amazon, Smashwords, Drive-Thru Fiction, and other quality outlets. Also available in a special edition, including the complete movie script. Grab White Zombie before it grabs you. Details at sdsullivan.com. Of the curse. 
take you into my confidence and warn you. There is a curse which says that all persons present at the opening of a pharaoh's coffin and who gaze at the face of the mummy therein shall die. been warned. You, Terence Morgan, beware. Your past may catch up with you. You, Ronald Howard, beware. Let the sleeping mummy lie. You, Fred Clark, beware. Let gold not be your god. And you, Jean Roland, beware the love of a handsome stranger. And all of you here now, beware. The terrifying story of a rampaging bandage and bone monster stalking those who defiled its tomb of terror. Mind if I say I think you're a swell person? Hmm? You're very beautiful. So beautiful, I'm going to make you immortal. Hey, where's Back. the girl? Well, you'll never see her again. I'll give you a treat to tell me where she is. I'm not kidding. If you were to kill me, you're leaving at large a monster that only I can control. Fresh from the website VampireOverHollywood.com, I've got Nicholas Hatcher on the show, and we're going to talk about something that's, well, it's, it's undead, it's not a vampire, but we'll, we'll <laughs> get into that here in a second. Nicholas, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. How are you? Good. Welcome back to Monster Kid Radio. It is so good to be back. I, you know I love Monster Kid Radio. It's an honor to be on again. Oh, uh, you flatter me, sir. Go on. <laughs> uh, it's uh, Man, I had such a good time last time. <laughs> I, I just have to say, what better thing to come back on and talk about than The Mummy? Oh, man. I love me a mummy movie. Me too. I, I don't know if I've got some deep-seated mummy issues or what, but uh, you put a man <laughs> in bandages and I'm on board. <laughs> that could be taken so many ways. <laughs> it really could, but we're probably not going to get into that. Yeah, let's not. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to talk about The Mummy's Hand, which is one of Universal's mummy films. Before we get to all that, though, what's going on with The Vampire Over Hollywood? 
Vampire over Hollywood is uh, is going very well. As uh, many people know, so I just bought the domain name, so now it's no longer blogspot.com. It's vampireoverhollywood.com. So you can check us out over there. As of this episode being released, we will be on episode 5, which will come out on April 25th, which is a Saturday. We will be covering The Mysterious Mr. Wong, which is... A fairly popular Legosi film, I think. It's pretty easy to get a hold of. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we were going to do a movie entitled Wild Company, which is a movie that I have never seen. It's something a little different. It's, from what I understand, it's like kind of like a romantic drama with Legosi in a small supporting mm-hmm. role. Okay. Yeah, not really sure what to expect from that, but I uh, unfortunately, the uh, version I was going to watch is now been taken down and besides that it's pretty much almost impossible to find so i'm going to keep trying to find a copy of it but until then uh recovering the mysterious mr wong so you know i don't know if i've seen any of the uh, mr wong movies that he or carl karloff did a couple of them too right i don't know if i've yeah, seen any did. of those um yeah i think this is i think lugosi only did one it's okay. this one it's kind of a dr fu manchu kind of sure rip off <laughs> i guess i don't know if rip off is a good word to use but it, it, re- it really is it's an interesting film. I enjoy it. Now, of course, this is a post. Actually, it's not even post. It's it's a World yeah. War II film. And so there's a lot of stereotypical things going on in it towards uh, Asians, which is uh, unfortunate. But there's still a lot to enjoy about the film. And, and I will be covering all that stuff on the episode. So. That's a product of its time, and yeah, know, yeah. I mean, but we still can't, we still can't dismiss it just because. Right. Of that. So that's that's something I always try to remind people that mm-hmm. these movies are of their time, and so they they feature things that yes may be considered offensive now, but we shouldn't automatically dismiss them because it's history. Right. So. I mean, there's a lot of really cool stuff in these movies, but along with that. Every once in a while, you stumble into something. So, yeah, and we see that a lot with Universal yeah. films and uh, their treatment towards women. In fact, we see some of it in the movie we're talking about today. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that we do. Yes, that we, we do. do. So, the movie we're talking about today is The Mummy's Hand from 1940. Now, this was not the first Universal Mummy film. Uh, I mentioned Karloff's name a second ago. Karloff was in the first Mummy film from Universal uh, in 1930. Two, I believe. Yes, and I have to say, the first Mummy film oh, is yeah. a masterpiece. In fact, it's probably one of my favorite films, period. Really? Yes, I, I love the first Mummy film. And it drives me crazy because you show it to people now and it's kind of criticized for being a little slow, but I don't think so. It's atmospheric. I mean, it's laying the groundwork for this really intense, dark story. And there's this underlying tone throughout the entire film. And it's just, Karloff is just evil in this film. Death, eternal punishment for anyone who opens this casket. The mummy. Is it dead or alive? Human or inhuman? You'll know. You'll see. You'll feel the awful, creeping, crawling terror that stands your hair on end and brings a scream to your lips. There's nothing on earth like the mummy. You will not remember what I show you now, and yet I shall awaken memories of love and crime and death. No. 
Now I know his horrible plan. He is going to kill her and make her a living mummy like himself. I love it. I, I think the first mummy movie is just full of atmosphere and just dark and but this is kind of a different <laughs> um <laughs> version of that the mummy's hand i was thinking about it. this is one of the first examples i think of a reboot in my opinion you know i was going to go down that route too i mean everybody's talking about the universal reboot and the the franchise and the universal yeah. universe are going to do that sort of thing this isn't new for universal this is something that they did back in the 40s when they relaunched their mummy well, franchise, I guess, with the mummy's hand. Reboot's yeah. kind of become a dirty word. Right. And, uh, yeah, in, in some cases, I agree. It is a dirty word. But I, I don't know. This is a good example of a, of a reboot, I think, because this takes an older story and kind of revamps it and, and gives it <laughs> new life. And um, <laughs> Oh, you went there. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> In fact, so much of this is I feel I feel like the first film was very much a dark, romantic. It was a horror film, and this movie isn't really as much of a horror film. It's more of an action adventure kind of thing, and you know, it's it's I don't know, it's it's just very different movie. But mm -hmm. I really enjoy this film a lot, and the the next few Mummy movies. Are they as good, quote unquote, good as the first Mummy with Karloff? No, probably yeah. not. No, but but they're but they're fun. You oh know? yeah, yeah. I think what a lot of people don't realize is that I think a lot of the pop culture ideas of what the mummy is and how you keep a mummy alive, it, it really doesn't come from the Karloff mummy. It comes from this mummy. Right. And this this film really laid the groundwork for what we think of as the mummy and what the mummy rules are and how you, you know, it's got to be this whole Egyptian thing with the Tana leaves and the full moon, which was a really strange add-on that I, I had forgot forgotten about. about that. Yeah. yeah, I really did. I was watching this again last night and I was like full moon. <laughs> and then there was yeah. wolves, there was wolves howling. I'm like, what is this? Is this a werewolf movie? <laughs> and, and I was very shocked by that. I really had completely forgotten about that. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this movie was played on TV more than the mummy was in the fifties or something. But this movie I found when I was watching it, I was like, well, this is all really kind of where the pop culture idea of the mummy came from. I thought that was kind of fascinating. Yeah, with you know how they move specifically, you know the, yeah. the the bunched up arm and the dragging leg and things like that. When you think of a mummy now, that's what you think of if you're not thinking of the CGI stuff with Brandon Fraser. And oh. yeah, <laughs> let's not think about that. Yeah, and I that? went there. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> apologies to anybody out there who likes those movies. Yeah, but I, hate, I can't stand. Them. Anyway, <laughs> but yeah, all the pop culture stuff from the mummy films comes from us. I love the Karloff mummy. I mean, I know a lot of people say it's kind of like a remake almost of of Dracula with the same themes and even the same opening music, but yeah. the mummy's hand and the four, was it four films? The, yeah. Four cars films. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That total run. It's just a fun action packed feels a lot like a serial yeah. kind of movie. And I had forgotten about a lot of the serial aspects of this. Yeah. I'd forgotten it was so short. Oh yeah. An hour seven. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I enjoy about these because I, I don't know about you, but I love cereals. Oh, yes. I just, I can't get enough of them. And I enjoy watching cereals, but 
sometimes they're kind of an endeavor just because there's so mu- so many episodes. And if you, I think if you put most serials together, they end up being around three and a half hours long. And I just, sometimes I just don't have time for that. But you sure. have films, you have films like these that get that vibe and they get those action packed punches in an hour, five minutes or something like that. And they had to do that to kind of bunch these movies together in the forties for double features and things like that. Mm-hmm. So we get, shorter punchier films and I, I you know sometimes that's a detriment to the film but i feel for movies like these like these like the mummy's hand and maybe something like house of horrors and things like that mm-hmm. that really works for the film in my opinion i think it does too it's definitely a different universal than what we were used to from the 30s i kind of wanted to touch on that you know yeah. I, I was also thinking about this i feel like the Universal of the 30s, the first Mummy film and the first Invisible Man film, those are A pictures for me. Like they, oh, those yeah. are, those are fantastic films and they, I, I believe they were considered that much. I mean, The Invisible Man was directed by James Whale. So I mean, that's, yeah. that, that alone is. They were prestige pictures for them. Yeah. But when we moved into the 40s, you very much had your, a-list monster films and your B-list monster films. A-list being Son of Frankenstein, The Wolfman. Mm-hmm. But we also had a lot of these, and there's a lot of them, a lot of these really interesting, I would call them more B-type films, which would feature The Mummy or The Invisible Man after The Invisible Man Returns. And then we get into like The Ape Woman and Rondo Hatton and The Creeper and things like that. I really enjoy a, a lot of those b films but it's shocking how the mummy and the invisible man were both kind of relegated to that area because you never saw the mummy in abbott and costello meet frankenstein or the the monster rally films or you know and i always was kind of shocked by that because at the beginning he was very much an a-list monster and by the time we got to the 40s they kind of were relegated to these kind of films and i wasn't sure what what to think about that you know it's weird, and maybe it's because of the reboot or the, the reimagining, the relaunch maybe, of the yeah. different mummy character, that sort of thing. Uh, from what I understand, the mummy was supposed to show up and meet Frankenstein, but for budget reasons, it just you know didn't happen. It oh, didn't okay. materialize. At one point, it was considered, but they're like, uh, we're not going to be able to pull that off. So it just Absolutely, didn't happen for yeah. whatever reason. Yeah. And of course, you know, they did meet the mummy later, and they met Claris instead of Karis. <laughs> yeah. Which, which still... you know, I still love. So Yeah, it just kind of boggles my mind, though. It's like, yeah. did you forget his name? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I, now I have heard a rumor of a film that was being considered that I would have loved to have seen. I'm not sure the exact list of all the monsters, but I know that there was talk in the mid forties of a monster rally film featuring the mummy, the invisible man, the mad ghoul. Oh yeah. Some of the second tier sort of monsters. And I thought, man, I would love to have seen a monster rally film that for once did just leave the Frankenstein monster at home and (laughs) did something. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the Frankenstein monster, but after him being revived in the third act, just to die again, I wanted something a little different. And I, I think that kind of a film would have been really intriguing to, to team up those monsters. Like the B team. I love it. I love the idea. I mean, yeah, they could have called it. No, I'm just kidding. kidding. (laughs) Um, But I I feel like that's a man. What a concept. I'd, I'd be interested if, of course, it'll never happen, but maybe like no, a fan, film, a fan yeah. film of something to kind of take those second tier monsters. Because I do love movies like The Mad Ghoul and Captive Wild Woman and things like that. that oh, kind of well, get, yeah. yeah, those movies kind of get ignored, unfortunately, a lot of the times, you know, except when they're shown on like Swingoolie. But 
I, I wish that there was more of an outlet for these films to be seen, but thankfully a lot of them are getting released on the uh, Universal Vault collection and things like that. So Sure, sure. Yeah, I remember picking them up on VHS when I first discovered I could buy these movies on VHS for myself. Uh, yeah. And I worked at a Blockbuster, so I got an employee discount. Yeah, uh, nice. <laughs> nice. So yeah, I grabbed every one of the Mummy movies, and of course on DVD a few times, because they kept re-releasing them, that sort of thing, and Man, I just I love having them all together because you can sit down and watch the the Karis movies back to back to back and and you know as we continue this and and listeners uh, Nicholas and I have talked about having him back on the show and doing all the mummy films. Oh yeah. You know the way that Joe Suber and I did the Abbott and Costello films just kind of every once in a while bring him back on to do the next mummy film. These movies do have a, a weird continuity. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. Sometimes absolutely fantastic continuity, but yeah. <laughs> that, that doesn't take anything away absolutely from Absolutely not. Absolutely not. They're just a fun watch. I mean, they really are primarily an adventure movie with some horror aspects to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the horror aspects in this is our man, George Zuko. You know, I talked about him last time I was on the show. I... I love George Zuko. I just, I have, he's one of those actors that I just have this weird fascination with. He, whenever he's on the screen, he just draws you in. And I, I believe that even though he's not in this film as much as I'd like him to be, this is one of his best performances. It really, really? is. I, I believe it is. Yeah. I mean, especially during the scene when they go to his office for the first time with the vase and you're, he's looking at them and he's, oh, yeah. he's like a snake. You know, it's just <laughs> the way he's talking to them. Oh man, I, I do believe this is one of his best performances. You know, speaking of B team, I guess when you think like the second tier of the big name horror actor, Zuko's right there. And you know, he really was used a lot in these B films yeah. of, of the universal monsters. He, he did a lot of these films, including most of the Karas films. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, fa- he's a fascinating character. He he was in a ton of films. He was actually a stage actor. And I don't know if typecast is the right word because he did do many other films, although in most likely much lesser roles. But it was really in the horror film that he, he found his niche. And he kind of fell into that same thing that Lugosi fell into where he would go play these kind of B roles at Universal and he would get work, but then he could also go to some of the poverty, like a poverty row studio, like Monogram, mm-hmm. and get A rolls. And so he could get top billing in a picture over there, just like Lugosi could. Through those uh, Monogram films and the, and the poverty row films that he would do, he kind of got that notoriety from the horror fans. And since these movies are so easily available in the public domain, because most of the Poverty Row films didn't have their copyrights renewed, obviously, I feel like he's kind of got this cult status to him, to us fans. Mm -hmm. And I I just think he's a really interesting actor. He brings a lot to the table. I think so, too. And you know, to bring it back to your podcast, he's got some interesting connections to Lugosi. He's appeared with Lugosi in a couple of things. Some of Lugosi's best films in my Sure, sure. You know, uh, some of the more... uh, I don't know. I do want to call them obscure connections, but he was in the only Bela Lugosi feature film where you see Bela in color. Yes, Scared to Death. Scared to Death. Scared to Death is an awesome film. And uh, yes, it is the only time you see Lugosi in color, which which is a shame, I think. And I like the color in that film, too, because it's just so... It's almost like the color, I think we talked about this last time, it's almost like the color is off a little bit, and so the whole movie is very dreamlike. Yes. 
Another one of my absolute favorite Legosi films. I don't care how low budget it is. Voodoo Man is just. Mm-hmm. Hello. Yes. Listen. A young girl just left here alone. Don't be frightened. We won't hurt you. <laughs> Let me out. I'm afraid that is quite impossible. I need you. You need me? Yes. Impossible. I think it's a mini masterpiece. I don't care what anyone says. I don't care how silly John Carradine looks in it. I love Voodoo Man, and I, that's one of those movies that I can sit down and watch any time and not get tired of it. Yep, yep. So, and, and to see those three together in that film, those three icons of horror, is I don't know. It's just it's, it's a strange feeling, but I love it. I really do. Yes, yeah. No, they're great in that. And then he was also in the Flying Serpent, which has some very some strong similarities to the Devil Bat. So, uh, so you, you like a straight remake? Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do like the flying serpent. I was trying to be lot, delicate. Actually. Yeah, <laughs> I do like the flying serpent a lot. Yeah, I remember watching that movie really late one night, and I'm just thinking, this is so familiar. And I, like, I was enjoying it, but it was like, what is going on with this movie? And I, I was watching kind of a scratchy, faded print version of it. I, I thought, this is this is the devil bat. And, yep. of course, I went and started reading about it, and yes, it was. But that doesn't take anything away from the film, because Zuko brings his own certain aura to the film and you know i love lugosi because i feel like he's one of those actors who brought 110 percent to the film every time and i get that same vibe from george zuko i've seen him in a couple other non-monster films and he still sticks out even when he's in the ensemble cast so yeah and zuko steals the screen every time he's on screen even when he's on the screen with karis i can't help but watch zuko there's just something about he's got this magnetic kind of draw it's just something about him. I don't know if it has to do with stage acting or something like that, or maybe he just kind of understood the kind of film that he was making and how he had to act. But, you know, we touched upon this last time when we uh, covered Dead Men Walk, but mm-hmm. he just, he's such a good evil character. Yeah. He, he, he does a fine job whenever he's playing a good guy, but he just thrives in that evil, evil character. Agreed. Now, unfortunately, and, and this is the case a lot of times with movies that have these stellar performers and actors in them, the rest of the cast can't help but pale in comparison. <laughs> you know, I will say I do enjoy the cast in this film, but yes, they do. It is kind of sometimes it's like, okay, where's George Zuko? Exactly. Uh, when is the <laughs> and, mummy going to get here? You know, yeah, exactly. I, I don't think the mummy shows up in this film until like 40 minutes in. And so it's like, Okay, this movie's only an hour long, so mm-hmm. when is the mummy going to get here? But Exactly. I, I will say I love Wallace Ford. I love oh, Wallace Ford. Oh, he's still – see, and that's what I was about to say is that the, the good guys, the protagonists yeah. in this. Yeah, they're not they're, bad. They're, no, they're great. I love watching them too. Uh, yeah. But when Zuko's interacting like with his lackeys or things like that, it's like, come on, it's a Zuko's scene. These guys yeah. are just, you don't know, even dressing. try. Yeah, but yeah, when it comes to the protagonists, you know, the good guys, Wallace Ford as Babe Jensen is spectacular. This guy was a great character actor, and he's actually been in a lot of films, but he has his Lugosi connection in The Mysterious Mr. Wong. He was in Freaks. This guy's a funny – he's just one of those really funny character actors, and you know he's pretty much forgotten today. 
Which is um, a shame because he steals every scene that he's in. Yeah. And And every time I see him in a film, like, hey, it's Wallace Ford. This movie's going to be good. Yeah. (laughs) So I I really, yeah, and he does turn up in a lot of different kind of films. So looks like he was a very uh, active uh, performer, character actor type, like you said. Yeah, he was in Harvey with uh, Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, he he did some important films, too. Yeah, he was kind of all over, but just kept working. Of course, he did things like The Ape Man or whatever. But, yeah, yeah. you know, still, it, he's so fun to watch. And his asides and the interaction, the patter that he has with the other leading characters, it's fun. I get the feel that he's one of those kind of character actors that we don't really see anymore. Not the same way. Yeah, a lot, because I think everyone is so focused on good-looking people good looking actors and you know they have to they have to be pleasing to the eye and because of that they kind of ignore a lot of these really good actors who could come in and yeah they weren't the prettiest people in the world they weren't the best looking people in the world but they were funny and they were talented and they knew what they were doing and i think we see a lot of that later on in like the hammer films you know every once in a while they would put in a really good character actor who, you know, sometimes could be as ugly as sin, but they were good actors. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? But those kind of people would never be cast in a film now. So I think we've kind of lost a little bit of those character actors like Wallace Ford. And it's a shame because he really makes this movie better in my opinion. Oh yeah. He makes the whole thing pop. Oh yeah. His interactions with banning babes interactions with banning are they're uh-huh. just fantastic they're fun uh-huh. and then later on uh, marta gets in on the act when babe and marta are sitting around the fire talking about yeah. how they both really like banning and hope nothing happened to him it, it's just phenomenal and it's fun to watch you know he's got his own character arc in the film so to speak and in a way yeah yeah it, it, he becomes kind of a hero at the end if it's not for babe well you know, things turn out very differently for our heroes in this film and <laughs> yeah it's just a really great performance and an essential character. And I think you're right. Wallace Ford needs a little bit more attention. I mentioned the ape man, you know, the same year he worked with Hitchcock and shadow of a doubt. So he could perform in more than just these low budget films. He could do a lot. Absolutely. And you know, that's what those character actors could do. You know, you just give them the role, they -hmm. take it on, they know what they're doing. It doesn't matter what genre the film is. You know, it isn't, I just do horror or I just do drama. They had to work. So they worked, you know, they, they got any role that they could and they gave it a hundred percent. And it's kind of sad that, you know, to see that all this work that they would put into these films is it's kind of, they, they've been forgotten. And it's a shame because I do think that actors like this, they need that bigger exposure. They Mm -hmm. need to be remembered more. We've heard a lot about, you know, Humphrey Bogart. We've heard a lot about all these big name actors, but a lot of these other ones kind of get swept under the floor, unfortunately. It's true. No, that's true. Well, well, speaking of the pretty people, uh, Banning. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I like I I like these guys. I like Banning. I like uh, Peggy Moran as Marta. The thing I liked the most about the three principal characters, if you want to call them that, is that they were all believable. Yeah, I didn't really have a problem thinking, oh, well, that's just cheesy or corny or something, you know, because uh, a lot of times, I think we talked about this last time too. A lot of times, some of these romantic things that they try to put into these monster films, they just don't fit all the time. And it's always, I I think the worst contender is like murders in the room org and you're watching it and you're just like, what is this? Like who who wrote this drivel, you know? And, (laughs) and in this film, it's totally natural to me. Mm -hmm. And they don't have a lot of romance in the film, but when they do have their little bit, 
by the tent. It's it, it feels real. It's cute, you know, because she's obviously fallen for this guy, and she gives him a little peck, and he makes a little grin on his face. You know, it's it, it's believable, and so I, I didn't have a problem with it in this movie. Yeah, I mean, well, there's not a lot of time to get to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. To get too bogged down in it, but you're right. I thought that was incredibly adorable. Yeah, that scene by works. the tent that was just so cute and. Like, oh, you know, I just loved it. <laughs> yeah, it was so, and I just, I love it because it wasn't overdone. Yes. It wasn't, it, you know, it was right there. It's all we needed. It was perfect. And I, I think that a lot of the other horror films, not just Universal at the time, could have definitely taken a cue from this one mm-hmm. in terms of that. I mean, I know it was a short film, but still, I thought it was very well done in that sense. Yeah. You know, Dick Foran did you know, a lot. He worked a lot. Not a lot of genre stuff. Again, he felt... Kind of character actor-ish. Uh, yeah. He did a lot of B-movies. Uh, Peggy Moran, do you know much about her background? I, I don't know much about her either. But... I don't. The only – I really couldn't find a lot of information about her or Dick Foran. The only thing that I thought was interesting was that they were both in Horror Island together. <laughs> the voice that's it you see you need a real dead body or it won't work it's george he's been murdered That is like a super B universal film. Yes. It's not a very good movie, unfortunately. Oh. I don't really like it very much, but it's still worth seeing if you're I mean, if you're a fan of these movies, it's it's worth at least a couple viewings and it is available out there. But yes, they were both in Horror Island. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. really the only information I could find. And Peggy did do a, a stint with Abbott and Costello on one night in the tropics, but other than that, yeah, I don't know much about her either. But you were you were mentioning character actors. We we gotta mention the great Salvini. Yes. Cecil Kellaway, who also was in Harvey. Oh, yeah. He was fantastic. Yeah. You know, I remember him from The Twilight Zone. Really? He was on a few episodes of The Twilight Zone. I you know, I grew up watching that show. I still watch it. I love The Twilight Zone. And, uh, yeah, he was on a few episodes of that. So every time I see him in something, I'm like, oh, hey, Twilight Zone guy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he was also in uh, The Wonderful Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Yes. Yes. I say there are things better left unsolved. Who knows what waits for us in nature's no man's land? Impossible, unbelievable, fantastic. But I tell you, it could happen. It could happen. It could happen. It could happen. Yes, it could happen. For various authorities believe that buried somewhere under the polar ice cap, in a state of suspended animation, are the awesome creatures, the leviathans that roamed the earth at the dawn of time. And under certain conditions, a nuclear explosion could free one from his icy tomb. Then, guided by instinct, 
the beast would come back, back to the caverns of the deepest Atlantic where it was spawned. An armored giant wreaking his prehistoric fury on modern man and his puny machines. Cities would be terrorized by the cruel intruder from the past. Populations crazed and panicked with fear by its destructive force. Granite and steel would crumble. Soldiers and their weapons would be powerless before the onslaught of the beast. The beast. The beast. The beast from 20,000 fathoms. Herald Square, 34th Street, Broadway. Every section of the city is guarded. No one knows where the monster will strike next. Another one, Colonel? No. You know what the radioactive isotope is? No, but if it can be loaded, I can fire it. I'll load it. Just remember one thing. This is the only isotope of its kind this side of Oak Ridge, so you can't miss. Anything Harryhausen is... Oh, my God. That enough for me is is to cement him into my, uh, my memory. But he was yeah. great in this film. He really was. He was... Oh man, another one of those just character actors that you just you don't forget about them after you see them. Yeah, no, I agree. He's fantastic in, in this. The great Salvinis, this magician character down on his luck trying to get out of Egypt. But he's such a joyful, playful character. I love the scene where they're sitting at the table in the bar. Yes. Um Oh my, and the, the, using uh, Babe's fingers to refill the drinks. It's, oh man, it's just <laughs> such a good actor and another one of those just believable guys. The thing I love about this film is that even though there is a mummy walking around and, you know, Karas has never really died and all that stuff, I, I have no problem believing this film, probably because the actors themselves <laughs> are so believable. You know yeah. what I mean? They're just, they, they totally, there's never a sense of any, well, that could never happen, or that doesn't sound right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I love this movie. I really do. And I think it's because of character actors like Cecil Kellaway. Well, they're character actors, but they do bring their A game to this B movie because of the relationships that they're able to establish. The bar scene with the three male leads are fantastic. With Absolutely. Salvani and his daughter, when they're just interacting with each other, they're fantastic together. Mm-hmm. They just spark. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he really does bring a lot to the table, even though he's kind of this doddering magician type who likes to laugh a lot. <laughs> and I mean, he's fantastic and he's done so much. You mentioned the Twilight Zone. Uh, he was in uh, Destination Space with John Agar, which was uh, a pilot oh, that awesome. never went anywhere, but I love that. And of course, you know, I'd, I'd be remiss and I probably wouldn't hear the end of it from Scott and Tracy. He was in the Shaggy Dog over at Disney. So, you know, <laughs> he was all over the place. I did not know that, but that is okay. That, that's fine with me. I, I'm, I'm not quite as adept on my Disney as I should be. So, <laughs> well, you know, if you want to learn anything, I know a podcast you can listen to. Hey, hey, I need to check it out. I really do. <laughs> I, I always, I always enjoy it when they're on their, when they're on your show. So, right on. No, they're great. I mean, there's nobody in this cast that I really struggled with. Like I said a few times when Zuko's on screen with his underlings, they, seem to pale a little bit but other than that i'm on board i love this movie and i love the cast uh they, they seem to be having a really good time we have to talk about tom tyler for a second oh of course you know i for a second <laughs> <laughs> i really like tom tyler in this role i'm really interested in this guy i've seen he was primarily known for westerns and he did a lot a lot a lot of westerns we, we can't hold that against him though i mean glenn strange no, no. was known for westerns and he filled in you know for frankenstein's monsters so i mean 
you no, know, there's, yeah. yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. I actually, I, I like Westerns. I kind of feel like he has that same syndrome as Glenn Strange. And I, you know, the very first thing you see in the credits before the movie even starts is, you know, all the principal actors and then build 10th down the way is the mummy, Tom Tyler. And I always think, why is he billed so low? Yeah. He's the star of the film, pretty much. I mean, the title of the film. You know, recently I rewatched uh, House of Dracula, mm-hmm. and I realized that they did the same thing to Glenn Strange as the monster. And I always just thought that was really, I don't know, demeaning. I don't know. I just, I never understood why just because Tom Tyler isn't Lon Chaney, he didn't get a higher billing when he's the mummy. I don't, I don't know. I, I kind of, maybe it was just because they were just considered stand-ins for the real thing or something, but I really like Tom Tyler in this movie. There, I mean, for, especially for the kind of movie this is, he's very good in this. He yeah. did a lot of silent films. You know, he has an extensive background in performing in front of the camera without any dialogue because of the silent films and things like that. And he yeah. really brings his A game again. There's that phrase. I think that's going to be the phrase of the week here on the show, the <laughs> yes. A game in the B movie. <laughs> but he brings his A game to this film, filling in for Lon Chaney or, I don't know, keeping the bandages warm until Chaney comes along. I think Lon Chaney gets a lot of the credit for the mummy, but this mummy anyway. Tom Tyler should not be overlooked. I'm going to say something controversial. Uh-oh. Um, Uh-oh. I, I'm, I am a humongous fan of Lon Chaney Jr. He's one of my favorite actors. That's not controversial. That's okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, I, I think Tom Tyler did a better job as Cars than Lon Chaney did. Because, A, Lon Chaney did not want to do the mummy films that he did. No. And we'll get into that later on when we cover the other ones. But he was not a fan of these films. He was not a fan of the makeup. He was pretty much forced to do them against his will. And I really feel like those films, he's phoning it in a lot of times. And I know that's going to be controversial to people, but it's true. As Tom Tyler plays Karis, he really exudes that sort of almost like that scared child almost because he, you know, he's got to have his tenor leaves. He's got to have them and he's not going to do anything except get those tenor leaves. You know what I mean? And so you see that desperation and, throughout his performance, especially in his eyes, even though they're blacked out, you can still get a feel of that. I just never get that from Lon Chaney as Karis. And uh, that's a shame because, you know, I I think Chaney does a good job, but he just kind of phones it in, in my opinion. You know, don't get me wrong. You know, I love him as the Wolfman. I love him in Son of Dracula. You know, he doesn't phone it in in those films. But I I really think Tom Tyler should get more recognition for his portrayal of Karis. I really do. I would agree with you. I love Cheney as well. I mean, I, I worship the altar that is Cheney. I mean, the man so did I. some amazing work. He's the only guy who did multiple, mo- as many monsters as he did for Universal. You know, the yeah. Dracula, the Mummy, the Wolfman, Frankenstein's monster. I mean, he is the man. Yeah. But he really did not like the Mummy films. He did not like doing the makeup. It was uncomfortable for him. Just was not a fan of being involved in that project and those properties. That said, Tom Tyler. And maybe it's because I haven't read as much about him. I don't know what his thought was or what his I'm, thoughts were on working on this film, but I'm not sure. And you know, he, he died kind of young. Mm-hmm. And so we, we probably are never going to know, but he actually was most popular for playing Captain Marvel, which I love Captain Marvel. He's one of my favorite superheroes. And, uh, he played Captain Marvel in the original serial, which was a humongous success. Yeah. And so 
he was either well known for the westerns or well known for Captain Marvel, and so this role kind of got. I don't know if forgotten is the right word, but it definitely wasn't what he was remembered for. And that's a shame because I I think he really, even through all the bandages and not being able to talk, he really did shine through all of that in my opinion. Oh yeah. And and again, I would, I would credit a lot of that to the serials and the silence. Just, yeah. he, he doesn't have the voice, so he's got to do everything else he possibly can to portray this character through the wonderful Jack Pierce makeup design. Oh yeah. And, I mean, he pulls it off successfully. And again, we talk about where the pop culture ideas of what mummies are come from. It's right here, folks. It's It's right here. The shuffling along with Mm -hmm. the broken leg and the, you know, not necessarily the broken arm all the time, but shuffling along, you know, (laughs) looking for, looking for his next victim because a lot of people don't realize unless they've seen the Karloff mummy, Karloff is only the mummy as he's seen on the poster and everything for the first five minutes of the film. Yeah. And the rest of the film, he's art at the bay, which is fantastic. Don't get me wrong. It's, he does a great job, but but, yeah, he's amazing, but he's not in the bandages that long. Yeah. That all is taken from Karis and, Mm -hmm. uh, and from the series that Karis, the, uh, the Karis series itself. Mm -hmm. It's kind of fascinating to think that. And I do think a lot of that does come back to television and of the shock theater and things like that, because yeah. these films were all shown out of order. And so I'm willing to bet that the four cars films were shown probably a lot more than the main mummy film was. So, sure. well, and just um, because there were more of them. Yeah, absolutely. You absolutely. Know, we, we only saw Imhotep the one time. That's a shame too, but people know that Karloff was the mummy and you know, nobody knows that Tom Tyler was Karis. So, you know, I, I, this film definitely deserves a second look for anybody out there who's listening, who hasn't seen it. Yeah. Now we, we talked about how this was a different universal than it was in the thirties, but we still had Pierce doing the makeup and you know, it's, it's pretty much a a version of the Imhotep makeup. It's, it's it's a mummy makeup, but it's still great and it looks good and it's, surprisingly mobile. And what I mean by that is there's a scene towards the end of the movie when the tea gets spilled all over the floor, the fluid, the tenderly <laughs> fluid gets spilled all over the floor and, and he dives after it. He wants to lick it up, you know, and, yeah. and the makeup is not so restrictive that he can't do that without breaking the makeup. It's great. I think a lot of it was that they kind of did that little cost cutting measure and we can get into that a little bit too, but uh, they did True. a cost cutting measure where the close-ups were all, the painstaking makeup. And then in the long shots, it was actually a mask, which is kind of indicative of this film and this series of films. Anyone who's watching it notices that there's way too much stock footage in this movie. There's (laughs) way too much stock footage to this movie all to the point where Boris Karloff is almost starring in this film at the beginning. Cause it's, he, I, I understand why, they use that wonderful scene where the camera floats into the, uh, the mystical pond and, you know, the past is shown again. Cause it's awesome. I mean, it, it worked fantastic in the first film and it's a cool scene, but I wish that they would have just reshot the whole thing. Cause it's painfully obvious that it's Karloff in the long shots. It's painfully obvious. Yeah. Karloff and Tyler, both, they have different body types. For Absolutely. sure. Tyler's got that Western cowboy yeah. body type, you know, exactly. and Karloff's this little Englishman and it's just, yeah. it doesn't fit. No, and back then 32, he's, he's still pretty slight and pretty frail. Cause you know, he was a starving actor up until Frankenstein's monster. So yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it's definitely a different body type. That said back then they didn't have these things on VHS or DVD or TV. 
Oh yeah. I so know. any of the audiences wouldn't immediately say that's Karloff, you know, I, I don't think. <laughs> I, you know, I hope not. The thing that people forget about today, and I even forget about it, we live in an awesome world where we can get every Universal Monster movie on DVD, almost, almost all of them. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's still a few out there. But, I'm still waiting for all the eight woman movies. <laughs> yeah, I'm still waiting for Curse of the Undead. Oh, um, yes. Yeah, it's a shame. <laughs> but anyway, we have all these movies at our disposal now, so we can we can watch all five Mummy movies in a row Anytime we want to. But back then, films came out, they were shown once, and that was it. You know, they might get another run, you know, like Dracula and Frankenstein got a a double feature. If they were extremely popular, yes. Exactly. Yeah, but The Mummy probably didn't get re-released nearly as much as Dracula and Frankenstein. You hear a new Mummy movie's coming out, you're excited, you go, and it's been, what, how how many years? Nine years, or eight years since the last Mummy film? Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be as fresh in people's minds as it is in our minds because we've seen the film, you know, 20, 30 times. I don't track how many times I've seen these movies. It just <laughs> makes me I. question what I do with my spare time when I do. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I started, uh, oh, I'm watching Abbott Costello meet Frankenstein again? Okay, well, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, there's no judgment here, but, yeah. you know. In outside circles, definitely. <laughs> so it's, it's, this, is, this is a safe place for us. So. This is true. You know, we haven't talked about the director at all. Christy Caban, uh, Cabani, Cabane? Uh, yeah, I was not, hoping you would know how to pronounce it. I um, am not sure. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm really, I'm really not sure at all. But I, I see that he did do Scared to Death, which is great. Yeah, which to go is, back uh, to our Scared to Death conversation. Which, once again, you know, if you guys haven't seen that, you guys need to check that out. I didn't really see anything else that really caught my eye. Well, what I find interesting is that he did a lot of serials and a lot of the silence. That makes sense to me. Exactly. So that that aesthetic carried over to The Mummy's Hand. You know, we're talking about how great The Mummy's Hand is and all that. I would have liked to see it maybe be a little bit longer because there are some moments that seem to happen pretty quickly. (laughs) And, And I attribute that to the serial style, the adventure style. By this point in Universal Monster Films, these films are being made for kids. This is true they very much kind of had to make it, you know, this, here's the bad guy, here's the good guys, they're going to, you know, do this, and then at the end, the good guys are going to win, he's going to get the girl, and, and, you know, that's fine, there's nothing wrong with that, but yeah, it does very much have that sort of serial-like thing, and I I do wish it kind of had been fleshed out maybe just a little more, but that being said, man, this thing packs a punch in an hour and seven minutes, it really does. Oh, it does. does. I mean, I think the director did a great job keeping the story moving, yeah, there are a few moments here and there that you know, we could have probably done a little bit more with, but otherwise, I think the movie, for as short as it is, packs a great story. I wish that they had kind of developed the henchmen a little better. Yeah, I, I think you, yeah, you've kind of brought it up a couple times already. They, you know, kind of like that stereotypical. It just it didn't work as well as it should have. Again, though, time and place. I mean, this yeah. is the forties and. Do Americans really know much about Egypt at this point or what Egypt's really like? And that's what no. all we have are the stories. And yeah, you know, it, it was yeah. kind of that, that little element was, was kind of rough, but it did make for an interesting climax to the film. Uh, sure. VampireOverHollywood.com is where you're going to find Nicholas's podcast. Vampire Over Hollywood is an amazing show. It's early in its run. He's five episodes in, but he's already firing on all Bela Lugosi cylinders. I'm learning a lot. I'm hearing about movies I've never seen. 
I'm excited for Nicholas and the success he's had with his show. Go check it out and tell him that Monster Kid Radio sent you. And come back here in a couple of days on Thursday when Nicholas and I are going to talk about the story and the plot of The Mummy's Hand. I had a great time talking about The Mummy's Hand with him, and I cannot wait to share that with you. Last week, Scott Morris and I talked about Planet of the Apes, and we've received some more feedback about the episodes talking about this film, like this voicemail. Hey, Derek, this is Joe Iden again, and I just wanted to throw a quick co- couple of comments at you on your second part of your Planet of the Apes podcast. Uh, you know, I was so glad to listen to it and hear it. it. You know, it made me happy to hear how much you liked it after seeing it the first time. You know, and, and it was it was cool. And I'm glad you're interested in seeing the rest of them because... You know, production quality may have slipped a little as the Apes movies went along, but they were always entertaining. You know, they were always entertaining. And I do have to correct you on one minor little detail, and it's kind of like, you know, technicality. Roddy McDowell is not in the second Planet of the Apes movie. Okay, he's in it in the beginning in a flashback. Well, it's not a flashback. It's kind of like a recap of the end of the first one. That's actually Roddy McDowell playing Cornelius. Uh, there is another actor playing Cornelius in the scene when uh, the James Francisca's character comes to see Zero and Cornelius. That's not Roddy McDowell. That is another. I can't remember the actor's name, but it's only a couple of quick scenes that he's in. Uh, he's not. He's in the rest of them. You know, he plays either Cornelius or Caesar in the rest of them, but that is another actor playing him. But technically, Roddy McDowell is in all of them because he is in that that beginning of the second one is from that where they replay the last few seconds of the of the first movie. So technically he's in all of them, but it is a, a different, I can't remember the actor's name. Rodney McDowell is actually directing a movie in England. He wanted to reprise the role, but he couldn't. So they had to get somebody else to do it. But I just uh, thought I'd just throw that out there. And I learned that by watching that documentary behind the planet of the apes that is hosted by Roddy McDowell. And it is a fascinating documentary. I think I mentioned this before. It covers the entire history of planet of the apes. Definitely work. I highly recommend it. Even if you have to go out and pay for it, I highly recommend that documentary. But I'm so much looking forward to the rest of the episodes on Planet of the Apes. I always look forward to your episodes, but I'm so glad. It was so cool to listen to you talk about it as someone who had never seen it and enjoying it so much. And I just want to let you know how much I enjoy listening to the podcast. Uh, uh, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the movies because I think they're all very entertaining. And uh, this is the granddaddy of all franchise, in my opinion, sci-fi franchise anyway, you know. So I'm glad you liked it, and I'm looking forward to the next episode. Uh, all right. Take care. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks for calling in again, Joe. Yeah, I have every intention of watching the rest of the Planet of the Apes movies. I'm having a hard time actually waiting. I have that Blu-ray set. I want to dive in so bad. But Scott and I are going to talk about the movies here on the show, and I want to wait until we're closer to covering the next film before I dive into that flick. I am going to explore all the special features. I can't wait to learn more about this franchise, which, wow, it is just so good. I'm disappointed to hear about Roddy McDowell not reprising his role in the second film. That's... Well, it's just disheartening because I thought he did such a great job in the first film, especially the way he acted through the makeup. That was pretty fantastic. So, you know, it's good to know that he's still in the franchise one way or the other and that he does come back in the later films. But don't tell me anymore, man. Spoilers. We had a number of people on Facebook also make comment about Roddy McDowell not reprising his role in the second film. So a lot of people, I think, are eager to hear our thoughts Well, okay. You know what? My thoughts on the next movie in the franchise. That will be happening soon. Scott and I will come back to talk about the next film, but we're actually going to take a little side 
track detour thing first and talk about another movie, Horror Express, in the near future. We also got an email from Mark Leeper. He writes, One question has always bothered me about Planet of the Apes. Why isn't Taylor at all surprised to find English being spoken on the new planet? For all he knows, it has had no contact with planet Earth. The story needs to have him able to communicate with the apes, but the script gives no thought to this problem. You know, I thought that too, and I can't remember if it actually made the cut, but I did mention that to Scott when we were talking about Planet of the Apes. I probably talked about it with my wife after the movie as well. It is one of those conceits I think you have to accept when you watch a fantasy or a science fiction movie. It would have been nice to hear Taylor react to the fact that they were speaking the same language that he was speaking. Perhaps this happened with the scientist, Although we didn't really follow the scientist once he got captured, so who knows? But it would have been nice to have this addressed. You're absolutely right. I don't think it was enough to take me out of the movie, however. And once you do realize what planet they're really on, well, then it makes sense as an audience member. But yeah, it shouldn't have made sense to Taylor so quickly. You're absolutely right. Well, Mark wrote in by emailing us at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. That's our email address. When Joe called in, he used our voicemail line, which is 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Now, that is a Google voicemail number, which means it's got a hard three-minute limit. So if you have more than three minutes worth of well thoughts to share with us, you can either call in more than once or create your own wave or MP3 file and email it to the email address. Thank you for writing in. Thanks for calling in, and thanks for all the comments on Facebook. So that contact information I mentioned a second ago, that's on our website at monsterkidradio.net where you can find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. There is a link to our Amazon store, a link to our live 365 internet radio station where you can listen to music and sounds from classic monster movies 24-7 for free thanks to Live 365. We also have a link to our Patreon page where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio and help support the show that way. We also have a way for you to get to our Facebook group from monsterkidradio.net. In our Facebook group, this is where the conversations are happening. This is where a poll is going. Every month I try to put up a new poll over there in the Facebook group. So if you're on Facebook and you want to join the group, go ahead and well, you know what to do. At the end of the month, well, the poll results are available on Facebook, but I also make them available in the Monsterelli Checkpoint monthly e-newsletter which you can subscribe to over on the right-hand side of our website. Just put in your email address at subscribe, and you will get no more than one email a month from me keeping you posted about all things Monster Kid Radio and everything else we've got going on here. Of course, you'll find the show notes for this episode over on our website, including a link to Nicholas Hatcher's website, Vampire Over Hollywood. Go check that out, and then come back here in two days for part two of our conversation about The Mummy's Hand with Nicholas here on Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank him for joining us on the show, and thank you for listening Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 Unported License. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Dig Sight. That belongs to the band Dinosaur Ghost. It's from their self-titled album, and you can find them at dinosaurghost.bandcamp.com. Let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Talk to everybody in a couple of days. 